Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Tonight, we're so delighted to be hosting this Pride Month poetry reading with Charles Flowers and Blas Falconer. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Um, I'm going to read their bios, and we're going to kind of do mostly reading, um, not so much conversation between the two of them. Um, we're going to, they're going to read poems, and then um, we'll open it up for questions, so it'll just be a big, delightful hangout with all of you. Uh, all right, so without further ado, Blas Falconer is the author of Forgive the Body, This Failure, The Foundling Wheel, A Question of Gravity and Light, and The Perfect Hour. He is also a co-editor for The Other Latina, writing at Against a Singular Identity, and mentor in Muse, Essays from Poets to Poets. He teaches in the MFA program at San Diego State University. Falconer earned an MFA from the University of Maryland and a PhD in Creative Writing and Literature from the University of Houston. He currently lives in Los Angeles, California with his family. Charles Flowers graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Vanderbilt University and received his MFA in poetry from the University of Oregon. His poems have appeared in Puerto del Sol, Barrow Street, Gulf Coast, Indiana Review, and Asaracus. What a great name. He was the founder and editor of Bloom, a journal for LGBT poetry, prose, and art. Currently, he serves as the poet laureate for the city of West Hollywood, where I live. Welcome, Blas and Charles. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Um, should I go ahead and begin, Maddie? Is that okay? Great. Um, so um, I am really glad to be here um, to celebrate Charles and this new book, The Idea of Ham. Um, congratulations, Charles. Uh, you know, um, as a writer and as an editor and um, as someone who has served in various literary communities, now as the um, Poet Laureate for West Hollywood, you have done a tremendous amount for the poetry community, the LGBTQ community, and it's an honor to be here with you to celebrate this. And um, I wanna thank you for all that you've done and for including me in this reading. And I wanna thank everyone who's here tonight. I see so many um, familiar faces and it's so good to see you. Um, usually when I read, I like to read the newest material because that's usually what I'm most excited about. But tonight, <clears throat> I wanted to select poems that I thought might be more fitting um, for what's happening around the world. Um, what's been happening these last few months and what's happening in this country, what's been happening in this country these last few weeks. So um, I'm gonna go ahead and get started. I have like poems and books and things all over my desk. I'm glad you can't see it. Um, let's see. Event. As a crowd gathered, I saw the field was fertile not the coat I left on a train 21 years ago, but the same color. It got cold, fast, dark, and everyone became a silhouette of the one he or she had been minutes before. We sat or stood among the trees to listen. Each glass in our hands held a little light the water trembled. I could see that much, like the first swell of panic when you can't tell where it's coming from. 
fatherland. The heat not having broken all month long, we stood in line and watched a boy race down the park's tallest slide, drop into the shallow pool below, from which he rose, renewed, a look of joy, relief across his face. My son held my hand and looking up, judged how long it'd take to reach the top of the stairs. In front of us, the man ahead taller, 50 pounds at least, more than I, wore red trunks, his hair dark brown, short. I saw the swastika first, white power inked across his back, the scene, skeletons, climbed his spine above a sea of flames. I felt each breakable bone in my boy's hand. He, who days before asked to live with us forever. Idiot. My mother called me once because you think everyone is good. The man looked across the park at no one younger than I'd have thought. And when the line, as if with one mind, began to move again, he stepped forward, the foot or two between us, perilous, uncrossable. Um, I was raised Catholic and, um, and I found mass terribly boring <laughs> um, and fought every Sunday to not go. But I have to admit that one thing that I found fascinating was communion. And I think it was just the intimacy of the moment when the person was standing in front of everybody. And, and I was particularly struck by those people who would um, close their eyes and open their mouths, which seemed like the most intimate thing you could do in front of in front of everybody to receive this, this host. And um, it was almost more holy than receiving, I'm certain it was more holy to me than receiving the communion, was witnessing it. And, um, and as I was writing about, about that, um, witnessing that, I was thinking about other times in our lives when we feel um, that sense of kind of humility and um, openness when um, we meet um, each other or um, when we meet um, a, uh, some sort of occasion. Communion. They open their mouths because hunger speaks for the spirit. You know this by the way they close their eyes, how they push the world away, all that light through the window, unbearable to watch, as watching two people say goodbye at the airport is, almost, the public display of grief, how they hold each other in their private dark, which is its own brief prayer. Um, the next poem, Revolution, is an ecrastic poem. So it was written in response to uh, a painting by a Puerto Rican painter named Mirna Baez. It's called La Canal, which is a um, plantain orchard. And, um, and it's written with my grandmother in mind. My mother was born and raised in a very small um, town in Puerto Rico. And my grandmother was a fierce independent and often spoke against um, colonialism. And, um, and I've thought a lot about her over the last, you know, 20 years, let's say. Revolution. Plantain trees gather at the edge of the orchard, clamor for light in the foreground. 
they seem to grow as one, as if they'd fill the field and the mountains behind them, leaves large and frayed. We stood there once, or someplace like it. So here we are again, it seems, years later, branches leaning over the road, you in your long skirt, looking out as if to recall something you meant to do. My country, I hear you say still. But if that's dust in the hills, you know what's coming to the field. You'll stand among them till there's nothing left to see. I'll wait beside you, though I don't know what we're waiting for. I'm gonna go back to my first book. Um, it's called, the poem is, um, is titled, uh, the Battle of Nashville, but it really references much more than that um, battle during the Civil War. It's really also addressing the um, civil rights movement, um, and specifically the uh, sit-ins of the 1960s, and, um, and also the private battles that we fight um, alone, or sometimes with our families or those close to us that other people don't, don't see. The Battle of Nashville. Snow gives the sky a new dimension, depth, a soft glow, as if the air lit the yard, which slopes to the city, which shimmers. The river is always moving, but the atrium on fifth, the crests where blacks locked arms and would not budge. A plow takes the hill where cars line up in rows and half-built lofts replace the houses. The man who built our house built diesel engines and kept the trucks he couldn't fix. His daughters sold it all except the how-to books, the shop fan he left in the attic. We're not brave but we find one another in bed each night, your hand or my hand reaching out. In the morning, you take the trash and I make the coffee. Nearby, battles were fought and men whose wives waited for them died. If soldiers held the highest ground, one stood here. If there is one, there is at least one more. Standing shoulder to shoulder, they share a blanket as snow settles in the trees. I think they are afraid. I think this is love. Um, when I first moved to um, Los Angeles, my husband and I went to dinner. We moved with our two boys, so we'd been together for a while. And um, we went to dinner at this restaurant and um, in the middle of the dinner, my husband um, reached out and took my hand and I flinched. And, um, and I remembered a moment in my 20s when I had been assaulted for um, a, a similar, seemingly small gesture of affection. And as I um, was writing this poem, those two moments became fused and, um, and in kind of consideration of their relationship to one another. And the poem's called Gesture. You stretched your hand across the table and said something I couldn't over the clatter of forks and plates, the restaurant's chatter. And though the body, once thrown to the ground, bruised and bleeding, 
for what it wanted, has a memory of its own. How policemen laughed later. The body also speaks its own language, your hand open before me and the world as if to say, I cannot save you, holds something like happiness in it. And I'm gonna end with one poem that is not my own. Um, it is by Ross Gay. And if you don't know it, then you're welcome. <laughs> and if you do, then, you know, you know what's coming. It's absolutely magnificent. It's the poem called um, To the Fig Tree on Ninth and Christian. Tumbling through the city in my mind without once looking up, the racket in the lugwork probably rehearsing some stupid thing I said or did, some crime or other. The city, they say, is a lonely place until, yes, the sound of sweeping and a woman, yes, with a broom beneath, which you are now to, the canopy of a fig, its arms pulling the September sun to it. And she has a hose, too, and so works hard, rinsing and scrubbing the walk, lest some poor sod slip on the silk of a fig and break his hip, and not probably reach over to gobble up the perpetrator. The light catches the veins in her hands. When I ask about the tree, they flutter in the air and she says, take as much as you can, help me. So I load my pockets and mouth and she points to the stepladder against the wall to mean more. But I was without a sack, so my meager plunder would have to suffice. And an old woman whom gravity was pulling into the earth loosed one from a low slung branch, and its eye wept like hers, which she dabbed with a kerchief as she cleaved the fig with what remained of her teeth. And soon there were eight or nine people gathered beneath the tree, looking into it like a constellation, pointing, do you see it? And I am tall and so, good for these things. And a bald man even told me so when I grabbed three or four for him, reaching into the giddy throngs of yellow jackets, sugar stone, which he only pointed to, smiling and rubbing his stomach. I mean, he was really rubbing his stomach like there was a baby in there. It was hot, his head shone, while he offered recipes to the group using words which I couldn't understand. And besides, I was a little tipsy on the dance of the velvety heart rolling in my mouth, pulling me down and down into the oldest countries of my body where I ate my first fig from the hand of a man who escaped his country by swimming through the night and maybe never said more than five words to me at once. So it gave me figs and a man on his way to work pops twice to reach at last his fig, which he smiles at and calls baby. Come here, baby, he says, and blows a kiss to the tree, which everyone knows cannot grow this far north, being Mediterranean and favoring the rocky, sun-baked soils of Jordan and Sicily. But no one told the fig tree or the immigrants. There is a way the fig tree grows in grooves at once. It seems to hold us. Yes, I am anthropomorphizing, goddammit. I have twice in the last 30 seconds rubbed my sweaty forearm into someone else's sweaty shoulder, gleeful, eating out 
of each other's hands on Christian Street in Philadelphia, a city like most, which has murdered its own people. This is true. We are feeding each other from a tree at the corner of Christian and Ninth. Strangers, maybe, never again. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. That was fantastic. Do I start, Maddie? Yes, whenever you're ready, Charles. Okay. Sorry, jumped the gun. I was so excited about Blas. That was beautiful. And Ross, Ross Gay as well. Uh, yeah, Blas and I were talking. It's like it feels a little weird to be doing some self-promotion in a time when there's so much going on on a health front and in a social front. I wanted, wanted to acknowledge, I mean, I was thinking Black Lives it's a matter. I, I also was thinking black arts, black music, black poetry. There's so much that those black lives have created that um, have helped make my world. Um, and I, I wanted to find a poem. I wanted to read someone, a contemporary poet, um, but also kind of acknowledge the historical context. And um, I found a poem by um, my friend Honoré Jeffers. Um, and I have to pull it up on my phone, I'm sorry. This is on the Academy of American Poets website, poets.org, and um, her new book is called The Age of Phyllis, and it's about Phyllis Wheatley, the first sort of African-American poet in the late 1700s who was a slave and became a freed slave and wrote, and she's sort of where African-American tradition usually begins, but it's about not only her, but also her the context and the times in which she found this poem um, that Honoré wrote um, about uh, Sojourner Truth. And it's, there's, uh, Sojourner Truth is known for many things, but she's known for this speech in 1851 at this women's rights convention about what, women getting the right to vote and other things. And it's, uh, it's often known as the Ain't I a Woman speech, very well known. And what I learned in this poem is that there are two versions of that speech. It was done in 1851, and it was transcribed and published in a, in a black newspaper at the time. Um, but then 13 years later, a white woman rewrote it using a Southern vernacular, even though Sojourner Truth is from New York. And that is Ain't I a Woman's speech. And that's become the, mo the more famous version, which has um, misinformation in it. So I, it's just in this time of sort of, um, white culture, black culture, who's speaking for whom, and all of that. And uh, um, it has one of these incredibly long titles, uh, <laughs> so bear, bear with me. Um, it's called The Prophetess Sojourner Truth discusses the two different versions of her most well-known speech, one nearly unknown and one very beloved, yet mostly untrue. I believe that white lady meant well, but she took liberties with my story. There was a pint, and I am a woman, but I never did bear 13 young. There was an audience, and I did stand, at first hesitant, but then speaking God's clear consonants in a voice that all might hear, not with apostrophes feeding on the ends of my words. And I am six feet tall, and some might say broader than any man. And I was a slave, and my child was taken from me, though I fought to get him back. And I did work hard, and I did suffer long, and I did find the Lord, and he did keep me in his bony-chested embrace. And if I showed you my hands instead of hiding them in my sleeves or in a ball of yarn, you could see my scars, the surgery of bondage. And I have traveled to and fro to speak my gospel talk. Surely I've got the ear of Jesus. But I forgive that lying woman because craving is a natural sin. She needed somebody like me to speak for her and behave the way she imagined I did so she could imagine herself as a Northern mistress. And there I was, dark and old, soon to fold my life into death's greedy hand. And in this land and in this 
time who could never shout her down. Honoré's uh, amazing poet, if you go to poets.org, you can hear her read that poem and her delicate, beautiful Southern voice. Um, and uh, it, it just really resonated for me at this, at this point. Um, I am so grateful to be here. I'm so grateful to Skylight. It's my favorite bookstore. I used to go to Skylight before I moved to LA. I met Carrie Slattery, one of the longtime managers there. Uh, today's her birthday, so happy birthday, Carrie. And I'm Maddie for putting all this together. And Blas, I'm so grateful to read for you, with you as well. We met at AWP many, many moons ago, many dance floors ago. Um, and uh, I've, I was so happy when you moved to LA. Um, so this book is an interesting uh, uh, compendium, I guess. There are poems in here. I'm going to read six, six poems. And um, some are 30 years old and some are written last year. So it's, it's a wide range. And um, I'm going to start with a, a very California poem um, and a couple of recent poems. This one and the, the one I'm going to end with, I, I use some song lyrics. This is very risky. I use some long song lyrics and I actually am going to attempt to say those in the right tone. Um, so bear with me. Um, uh, it's just something, and I'm, I'm working on a new point now and I'm doing the same thing. So I don't know what that's about, but that's something I'm doing now. It's called Jacaranda, uh, which is a tree. <laughs> it's late May and Jacaranda petals cover King's Road. Small purple blossoms across the asphalt and sidewalks, each car's shine blotted and stained. Yet their beauty cannot be denied. On my first encounter with their purple light, I fell into the land of Dr. Seuss, where bright trees and a talking cat can teach a boy a lesson. Imagine myself in a forest of purple. I wish, where melancholy Sondheim sings to me, I wish, more than anything, and I'm back in Tennessee, finding my mother alone on our screen porch, listening to the summer night and the heart's litany, to be single, to be married, to have a child. My heart was just beginning to dream its own tale, a prince to rescue me from a Baptist dragon. I wish. Today, a purple tree and plangent show tune remind me how the heart endures, its chorus of desire never abandons me, season after season. Um, I'm very grateful to have an opportunity um, to get an MFA at the University of Oregon. Garrett Hongo is the director of the program, who's here, I believe. I saw him. Um, and when I, I took the MFA because it was a, and Garrett helped me to make that decision to do that because he's like, give, you know, give yourself a chance to write. I had written a little, but I wasn't sure if I was a poet, if, if it was something I could really do or sustain. And so I, I went to Oregon and the oddest thing is I found myself, uh, having lived in New York and then I was in Oregon, found myself writing about things I didn't expect to write about. Primarily the South where I had lived and loved. And this is the first poem, this is, this is Pride Month. Uh, this is my first poem where I sort of came out as a poet, I guess. And just sort of a, <laughs> and again, it's something I wouldn't think I would write about. It's called Football. Boys in the field, a cold, clear light washing over them as they move, shifting lines and circles. I watch legs bend, their arms curl each other's waist, bands of muscle and bone that join and break away easily, quickly, tackle made. I smell their film of sweat, watch their faces flush through the mist of their breath, desire stretches through me, the way a canvas rips, pulling and ting until stitches burst. I want to join them as their bodies meet and hold with a yet I resist, knowing I drop a pass, bruise against the ground beneath their heaviness, which I fear as much as emptiness after another's embrace. I want to know how they can gather as one, a tumble of arms and legs, then walk away, separate to themselves, as if untouched by all that flesh. 
the way a man will cling to a woman, pushing her away and falling through her into his own passion. Uh, this next poem is a, a New York poem. I've lived in most corners of the country. And uh, one thing I'll say about this, and I can say, I think for generally most of my poems is that the, the inspiration, the kernel that starts the poem is something that really happened. And so um, this really happened. The way we were. The East Village glows with slush in early February. It's Monday and the week seems endless at the Second Avenue laundromat. A trace of cardamom and cumin cuts into the warm, soapy smell of love, which hangs over everything and everyone here, even the gym queen who pouts while his boyfriend sorts their Calvins. When the radio segues to news, the Latina laundress stops making change to reach for the dial. A sad, clear voice fills the room seems to sigh as the present slips away. A girl with cropped green hair looks up from portrait of a lady to stare at the dryer, thinking of the farm in Wisconsin where her mother hangs her sheets out to dry in the wind. Two waiters from the Indian restaurant across the street stop folding their pile of burgundy tablecloths to smile at one another. The pouty boy stands up to tickle his boyfriend, who's lip syncing eyes closed, remembering their first kiss. And I, with my voice, am projecting nostalgia onto strangers, willing the present back to a memory of wanting to be held by my father, my desire unnamed before boys, before I glimpse the way I would be. What can heal the churning shame of childhood? Only the future forgives, the image of yourself beyond the present which allows you to smile at strangers listening to Barbara, whose voice carries me into the winter night, whole and alone and humming. And that was for Constantine. That's his favorite poem of mine. Um, the next poem is again another subject I wouldn't think I would write about. It's called, sorry, My Father's Playboys. A boy always know hidden, scattered among secret things. My father kept his playboys in a bedside drawer, tucked between fishing journals and road maps, ballpoint pens, football schedules, and a measuring tape. How I found them remains lost, an empty house, a dusk of transgression. There was only one, sometimes two, not a year's worth, no subscription of lust, just a rare random purchase. July, 1974, March, 1977. I was amazed by what I found inside, each mouth open, their eyes so clear, their curves against desire's hard backdrop a hayloft, a strand of bleachers, the hood of a car. They were everything my mother was not, blonde, naked, silent. Those centerfolds were my first lesson in the heart's most difficult trick. You can want what you do not love. You can love what you do not want. A um, few people have asked me about the title of the book. I'm about to read the title poem called The Idea of Him. And um, that wasn't the original title to the poem. Uh, the poem's about my first boyfriend. And um, it was that, named after him. But, uh, the idea of him was a phrase I used in it because you can tell I write a lot about desire and the heart. And, uh, you know, sometimes the idea of something is better than the something. If there's a couple that says looks good on paper, but doesn't work. Um, so that's kind of the idea I play with a little bit in remembering this first man, this first boyfriend. The idea of him. On a dirt road bordering a field behind his house, 
I stood for a whole roll of black and white. Not the poses of childhood, but alone against a backdrop of waist-high grass and budding trees. He told me where to stand, but nothing else. My arms empty and awkward, I didn't know whether to grin or frown. So I did both, folding my arms, then releasing them, before fanning them out from behind my head, as after sex. It was Sunday, and the mate was rising. My legs sore and sweaty from hours of dancing the night before. A photographer who wore black, he danced with his hips and his fists, his face a grimace until asked his name. At 4 a.m., we walked past houses of folks dreaming of work and church to the slow negotiation of the front door and first kiss. I was drunk and afraid of my body, his cock wet in my hands, a cry opening into water. I never saw his pictures of me, yet every day I pass men my age then with the same and flutter in their eyes as they move toward what they want. And their hearts, I imagine, are pure. I want to tell them about losing something before you have it or even know what it is. But I, but I hurry past them toward home as if somebody were waiting for me to open the door and embrace him or the idea of him. This morning, my desire, thin as mist, lifts from the web of his smile, all his green, his red thinning hair, the white ridges of his back, his wrist circling the lens, my face a blur, then distinct and his. Um, I'm gonna close with a poem I wrote, which you'll see when I, when I wrote it, it's obvious, but uh, it was reprinted last year in um, the One City, One Pride Arts Festival that the city of West Hollywood has. Um, and, uh, has a complicated relationship sometimes with pride, with uh, um, that in this. The sun always shines on Pride Sunday. After Pride at the Gold Coast, the bar sits mostly empty, save for the older crowd who keeps the place open most nights. Bas baseball flashes across the screens, yet no one pays attention but the husky bearded bartender who makes you feel, if not wanted, then a little special. 20 years ago, I would have dreamed him home and mine and forever. Tonight I settle for a smile and a wink and him remembering my name. When age of Aquarius comes on the jukebox, yesterday's march comes to mine. Let the sun shine. Its remnants of glitter still gleaming the street outside. At times, I am of the age exhausted by pride. Decades of marching, chanting, the insistent forced joy. Let the sun shine. What is the past tense of pride? Still, I crave the pageantry, how it felt to be young and gay and in the open air, unafraid and surrounded by so many who love the way I do. The heart's echo redeems the body, lifts me beyond the dark moments. We are always marching into the sunshine, our arms in the air, ascendant. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. All right, well, we're gonna open it to questions. Um, if you have a question, just uh, write, write something in the chat. You don't have to write out the whole, the whole question and I will unmute you so you can ask it to yourself. Also, feel free to take a moment to soak it all in. Hmm. All right, we have a question here from Nicole. Where are you, Nicole? All right, I've unmuted you. 
Hello. Hey. Um, hi, Charles. That was so beautiful. Blossom, it was so great to hear you both read. Um, it, you know, it's interesting, Charles, like I, I, I recognize some of those poems throughout the years and I know how long and how hard you've worked on these poems. And I would love to hear you talk about what that is to carry work across, you know, so many years and to pull it together. And I also, I'm dying to see your cover. Do you have a copy with you? Mm. Uh, nice. The publisher, um, Lawrence at Midsummer Night's Press, he found this is a London photographer. I don't know who the model is. It's not me. I've been asked. It's not me. Um, but uh, it's a very, it's a very sexy picture, but also kind of uh, abstract in a way. So I love it. Um, thank you, Nicole. Yeah, it felt really strange um, to kind of try to pull this all together. I, a few years ago, I think Aaron Smith, the wonderful poet, was the first poet to help me put together, try to put together a collection. And I, um, he is really good at structuring a book together. And so um, it, uh, that was the first time I've ever done it. I've never, I don't, I don't know how to do that. I, that's not something I had ever learned. And so it's a bit um, daunting. Because I, you know, and, and, and Lawrence and I had a couple of back and forths with some reordering and adding some different poems and taking some out and stuff. So um, it feels really strange to have them all in one kind of place. But I, rereading it kind of in, a, in one sitting or so, um, there's a lot of echoing back and forth. They're talking to each other in a way that either through images or um, theme, um, it's sort of, um, I don't know, you often hear poets talk about what their project is or, or for a particular book. And it, um, I don't know if I ever thought about it so much until I started to put this together. But um, I remember talking to one of my thesis advisors at Oregon and I said, you know, my poems are about desire and loss. You know, they're all about desire and loss. And she's like, no, they're all about desire. You know, loss is in there, but it's not, it's all about um, desires your umbrella, desires your, your topic. And so um, it feels a little, it just feels strange. It feels vulnerable. I'm like every neurotic poet that's like, what, what are people going to think? And who's going to read it? And oh my God, how many people are going to show up? And I'm just a, a regular neurotic writer poet. And um, so I feel a little exposed. Um, I've lived with these poems for so long, <laughs> and most people have never heard them. Most people don't even know I write poetry. Some people don't. Um, so it's, it is a very kind of very different feeling um, to sort of put, put it out there. Yeah. Thank you. Any other questions? Come on, be brave. You can also just, if you want to like say something to either of the poets, that's fine. It doesn't have to be a question. I'll unmute you. Jackson, can you hear me? Hey, Jackson. Oh, wait, you know what? Let me, let me, uh, Jackson is another Southerner. There are a lot of Southerners in here. I believe my sister's in here. I was trying to get in here. Oh, your sister's in here? Oh, wow. My, my sister's here, Nicole. A lot of Southerners here. <laughs> well, uh, I just want to say, I mean, I'm just, I can't wait to read the whole book. The, the imagery was so clear and so um, cinematic and so, uh, I just felt like it was so heartfelt and um, and beautiful, and uh, I just wanted to say that because I was very very impressed, and it just took me to a, a different place. And um, I look forward to getting the book. Thank you. Oh, there's a question for Blas in the chat. Um. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Jessica. Um, how has fatherhood changed you as a poet? Oh, it's funny because I, I had a poem in there that I pulled out 
from my second collection called Lighter, in which it's kind of a, in the moment, I, it was the moment where I realized, in the poem, I'm, my, my son had febrile seizures, our, our older son, and, and in this one night, we were passing him back and forth, and um, it, I realized that everything that was important to me before was not important anymore. And, um, and uh, so it really changed being a father, you know, although I, I think people get to this in many, many ways, but for me, it was when I became a father, um, it, you know, I, ha I had I'd approached poetry with, it was like central in my life. And all of a sudden it was not central for many, many years. And um, it's really kind of all I cared about. And um, even my husband was like, <laughs> took a back seat to my love of poetry. And then um, fatherhood changed my life in that way where I thought, no, this is, this is now central, which was actually a really healthy way to approach poetry. Actually, to be honest with you, um, it, helped me to be kind of more playful and also to think more about what is really driving me to write. Um, not this world beyond outside. Like I'm so grateful to having uh, these kinds of moments, these readings and to be able to publish, but really the great joy of being a poet is to sit and look with yourself and to write and kind of, kind of understand where you are in that moment. So, it, it just kind of put everything into perspective for me. Um, I know that Nicole and Jessica, you have your own babies, um, you know, that are really important to you. And I love following you on Facebook so I can kind of keep up with them. Um, but so you know, you know, like what's important, like the job is amazing and it's great to be a teacher, but um, you know, and it's great to get published and it's great to kind of have the, to win an award if you win an award. But um, the great joy and what is lasting for me is having this art form that I can return to for decades. And, um, and I think becoming a parent kind of brought that new perspective. Crystal wants to know the best way to get the book uh, Charles's new book. I'm just gonna gently suggest that you order it from Skylight Books. Um, but you can also order it from your local indie. Indies love you when you get books from them, especially now. There's also bookshop.org. That's another uh, great way to get a book. Um, and then Miguel has a question. Miguel, I'm gonna unmute you. Maybe that's not working. I'll just read his question. Uh, all right, he says, hi, Charles, congrats. Can you talk about place in the book and how you managed to think about bi-coastal cities and the gay experience? Um, sure. Um, yeah, as I said, I've kind of, I grew up in the South in Tennessee. I got my MFA and I moved to New York after college. Then I went to Oregon for two years for my MFA. I moved back to New York, spent 20 years there and I've been in LA, um, um, 12 years and uh so i i, I don't know it, it it an idea for a poem sort of comes uh, people about people have said like so what do you love better or what how do you know if it's an la poem or a um new york poem or a southern poem and it's so it's always about the past so it could pop up at either any of those places i guess i get um i'm working on a poem now which doesn't have a place yet um, and I, I don't know if it needs one we'll see I think it might but it's about um, it's about dancing uh, something I'm missing during the pandemic where we used to dance and sweat together and have this community and that's not possible right now and so I've been thinking about all the places I've danced <laughs> Perry's and Eugene and the warehouse in Nashville and uh, boy bar in New York and all these different dance floors and are they all gonna have um, Are they all gonna have a, an appearance? I don't know. I don't know if it's about the place uh, or the Behavior, I don't know um, But it's just you know, and, and that's kind of 
my original thing about when I moved to Oregon, I'd just been in New York for two years. I thought I'd be writing all these New York poems. And I wrote a lot of, a lot of poems about the South, about my mom and my dad. And, you know, it just, it didn't, I didn't, I wasn't thinking of myself as a Southern writer, but you spent 21 years in a place and it's, it's going to make an imprint um, that, uh, you know, and there's still stories to tell. And there's some in here um, in the book. Um, but I don't know, and, and, and you have to think of the passage of time. You know, I spent, people say, what do you like better, New York or LA? And I said, well, I spent my 20s and 30s in New York, and it was fantastic. And I'm spending my 40s and 50s in LA, and it's fantastic. So, I don't know, you, you have, di you know, you have different needs, I mean, it's obvious, I guess, different needs at different times in your life, and um, do I miss New York? Absolutely. Do I miss the South? Absolutely. It's like, um, you know, but I miss, if I'm not in LA, I miss LA. So I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if that helps or not. But um, Miguel, thank you for showing up. I know you're teaching actually in another Zoom class, probably side by side. So I hope that, I hope that, I hope that helps. Any, any other questions? Excuse me, Garrett just noticed I didn't say I miss Eugene. I miss Eugene, Garrett. Don't, don't worry. I spent a lot of fun. I had a lot of good times in Eugene. <laughs> Do the poets have questions for each other? I want to know what Blas is working on now. Um. <laughs> That's a very interesting question. And personal. Uh, for me, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I'm working on a couple things. I've, I've been working on a manuscript of poems tentatively titled Fatherland for a while. Um, it's been slow, but good. Um, though for the last couple of months, I've found it almost impossible to write my own poems. And I've had the great pleasure of working on a translation project that I'm doing with somebody else who's here, Mariano Zaro, who's in the reading, who has this unbelievable book called Padre Tierra, and I don't, oh, here it is. So I've been kind of reading over this book by Mariano Zaro that's just excellent, and so I've been translating that and um, doing that instead of writing my own work, but I feel like um, now that that's kind of making headway on that i'm going to start going back to my to my manuscript so um how about you what are you working on now uh i'm working well i have i'm working on this poem about dancing that seems the most but i have ideas for two others and i don't know if they're part of that same poem or not maybe it's a three-part but um I, I have a question do you think, yeah. do you feel like your poems are changing now that you have this book out? Like, do you feel like you're kind of pivoting in any way or does it feel like, like a continuation of what you've already done? I think, I think they've changed a little bit um, in terms of, um, I want to say lightness. I was, I was in grad school when my father passed away and my mother passed away a few years after that. And so for many years, my books were heavily about kind of grief and loss. And I'm not feeling that right now. Recently, I've been fortunate. No one, I haven't lost anyone to COVID. I've had a few friends in the hospital, but they are all good. And uh, so I, I haven't had that kind of grief. Um, there are other smaller griefs, but I haven't had that. So I, I definitely feel a little freer somehow. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and sometimes I just have a, a flash, a, a phrase will come to mind and I'm like, okay, I have to file that away. I want to use that. Um, and, but I don't know where or how or when yet. And so some, one of those phrases are, um, it's kind of growing. I just stayed, I just stayed for a very long time. When I got out of grad school, I'm, went back to New York and I, I didn't write for five years after I got my MFA. Life intervened and I didn't write for that long, but I was thinking and gestating and being in a writer's group really helped to give you deadlines and sort of force that out. So I'm looking to try to um, figure out how to do more. I feel, well, I, I, I feel like I'm turning a little bit of point 
and that I do, I still want to support and advocate for other literary communities, but I also don't want to neglect my own writing, which I feel that I, I may have done for yeah. other reasons, and I don't want to do that again. So yeah. what can I, you know, how can I write? How can I make a living? How can I be of service? You know, how can I balance all that together? That's awesome. That's great. All right, we've got a question from Isaac. Isaac, I'm going to unmute you. Mm. Thank you, Maddie. I have a question for for both writers. And I teach design, and I just wanted to ask a question about what do you, when is your most creative time? Evening or daytime, morning? And what do you do for your process to begin? What do you find that starts your creative juices? Go blast. Um, okay. Um, it's really been a, uh, it feels like it's been a while. Um, I have um, a very full home right now with um, a, pan a husband and two boys, young boys who have had meltdowns in the time that we've been here. And um, a dog, a cat, a bearded dragon, fish. So there's a lot of going on here. So I actually write in bed a lot. It's usually where I can kind of like lock the door and get a little bit of privacy. And I also like that it's not so serious. Like somehow sitting at the tape desk. Like I, I like working at my desk and my computer once I know I'm working with a poem. But... You know, I think that I don't really know how you write a poem. I really feel like every time I write a poem, it's like this kind of mystery that happens. I'm just writing and then it starts to feel like something tingly is happening. I've said before to students that it's like, um, it's like Narnia, you know, how do you get there? Like they get through the wardrobe the first time, but then after that they have to find, like it happens in other ways. And I feel like for decades now, that's what writing poetry has been like. And so I'm just writing and I'm trying to not take myself too seriously and kind of allow there to kind of, kind of be an honesty and playfulness and whatever. And then hopefully something that magic starts to happen and then the left brain can kind of kick in and start to think about, yeah, like, all right, what are the organizing principles and what patterns are you sitting like? And then that becomes fun once I know that I'm working, you know, with something that might, I might want to stick with for a while. And um, so um, I don't know if there's a, a time. I used to work all day before children. I would like, <laughs> I loved it. It was amazing. I would wake up, I'd read some poems, write a little bit, go for a walk, come back, write a little bit. And it could be like a 10 hour day, but I can't do that now. So it's, um, you know, it's usually kind of just um, free writing whenever I get a moment to myself and then if it feels worthwhile then kind of pursuing it and yeah really whenever I can <laughs> it's a great question beautiful thank, thank you. you thank you um uh I, I, two answers I guess I think uh, recently I would say definitely morning I feel more energy and more creativity usually music helps um, now you're hearing my children in the background. There's some dogs here. Um, but uh, I work better with deadlines. So um, I'm reading uh, Pride Poets is a series that um, Brian Sonia Wallace is curating for the month of June for the city of West Hollywood every Friday from, I think, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. There's a, a gaggle of poets. I don't know what you call a group of poets, a gaggle. Um, each reading for three minutes uh, on something they're working on or have just finished. So I have this poem that I'm, I don't even know if I'm in the middle of it yet, in the beginning of it maybe still, but I have to read something in like two weeks from Friday. So that's going to help. Um, that's going to help me. I need deadlines. And I think that's what was good about an MFA program or a writing group or accountability. I need accountability to get things done. So, but generally mornings, like I say, I, I, I just stayed a lot. I think about it, you know, 
all the time if I'm reading something or you know, I think, oh, this, I really, you know, I'll, often reading other poets uh, or even prose will get me, get the juices flowing as well. So morning and deadlines. <laughs> I see Jackson, you have your hand raised. Do you wanna say something? Yeah, when, uh, I have another question. Um, with the dramatic world events, uh, has that affected what your content or what your writing is? Because it's been such a, a rupture in life. I'm just curious for both poets if it's affecting you in a specific way. Very much, yeah. And, and I teach, um, 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 several of my students are here tonight and I think a number of people are struggling. I, and we talk a lot about like why or how it's affected our writing. And I think for me, um, you know, my focus was so much, you know, we, I, we have our obsessions, right? And, um, and that we return to maybe over and over again throughout our lives and find new ways to address them. And maybe um, my obsession is not really what I want to think about. You know what I mean? Right now, like they're just larger, more important things to think about. And so, um, I think that's why I haven't been working on my own poems and, um, and have been instead gravitating toward translation, which I think has allowed um, me to kind of stay in touch with language and, like, and, and enjoy the pleasure of, of language and what it, all it can do. And I feel like maybe now, um, I do feel like maybe I can return to it. And I do wonder, um, um, Jackson, I do wonder um, if, uh, if it, how it will shape, and I want to be open to it, to like, I usually address, I usually address subject matter um, more subtly. I don't address, I address the political, but to me, like writing a love poem was political, you know, 30 years ago. So, um, so to me, I always felt like I, I, I just, that was just the way I, I worked, but I did write that, I did read that poem, Fatherland, which is an explicit kind of address to racism and, you know, and white supremacy with my son, who's a, a person of color, who's African American. So um, I do feel like, you know, not that I know I'm, what I'm going to do. Like I said, I have no idea I, what the next poem is going to look like, but to be open to whatever it is. I feel like I need to do um, so and because of what's happening. It's a, an excellent question and one I'm thinking about a lot lately. Yeah. Um, well, the, the point I've been talking about, the dancing point, that was kind of a direct result of the pandemic and the limitations we've had uh, for the greater good. Um, and the sort of social unrest recently, I haven't. Um, it hasn't affected my writing yet. It's affecting me personally. Um, I'm thinking a lot about my own privilege that I've had. I was very, very fortunate in my education and I have benefited. Um, and I, you know, I want to be uh, an authentic ally. I heard, I've seen the sort of how, how do you be an authentic ally? versus sort of a performative ally, like, oh, I'm a good white person because I do this X and Y and Z. And so not broadcasting that um, uh, to get, you know, credit or gold stars for or something. But, um, you know, I've, been, I've just been thinking about it a lot. I haven't done, I've been to just one or two little uh, protests, haven't done any major ones. Um, I'm just thinking about it a lot. I just, and um, a friend of mine, um, Latinx poet Roy Guzman was um, on Facebook. He wants to buy, he shared that he wanted to buy 10 books by black writers now as part of his action taking. And uh, he was asking, he, he knew one poet he wanted to buy and he, he was asking for suggestions. It was amazing all the generative um, names and things. And I have to admit, I knew some of them. I didn't know a lot of them. And it's like, so I feel like I have some education of myself for this particular moment. I, I, I feel like I am a well-educated person, but there are gaps. And um, 
I want to do some work on that. And I've always sort of, in my working with literary organizations, I've always sort of advocated, obviously, for diversity and, 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 and sort of representation. But I, I also, um, I don't want to, I don't know. It's hard to say this. I don't, I don't want to be a white savior. I don't want to think that I can solve this. Um, you know, people come in and they have the best of intentions, but it may not be what uh, a particular community, like if someone came to me and said, well, this is what gay people need to do. And I would be like, well, uh, why don't we ask the gay people what they want to do? You know, and so I, I, I want to be supportive and I want to be uh, not just, I heard a great phrase, um, you know, the intention doesn't matter as much as sort of the effect or uh, the moment, the, you know, I don't know, I'm rambling, but it's, I haven't, I've been thinking. <laughs> I've been thinking, thinking, I wanna think, think and listen and, um, you know, support how I can. I, I, I haven't experienced racism. I mean, I just haven't. Um, so it's not something I feel um, drawn to write about in that way. Um, Susan Wood, I think it was Susan Wood, a wonderful poet, I think it was her, she said many good books, but uh, you know, she said every white liberal has their, you know, their race guilt poem that they gotta write, you know, and it, because I don't know, it's what we carry around. And so um, I don't know, I haven't written that. Um, I don't know if I will, but I, I think I can live in a way that, that helps rather than hurts. I think that's a good place to stop. What do you guys think? <laughs> all right well thank you so much charles and blaz um if you guys want to unmute and and cheer and clap i'll have a, we'll have a moment of noise yeah. thank you for listening to the skylight books podcast series please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on twitter and instagram also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.